I have a particular quirk. I like to speak from the floor. So, uh, and I thank the, the church for letting me be creative uh, and speak from down here. Um, as Pastor said, uh, I'm a staff person with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. This is my 34th year as a staff with InterVarsity. And uh, for three years in the 80s, when things were communist in Eastern Europe, we, uh, my wife and I lived and family lived in Vienna, Austria, and I was one of those guys that went behind the Iron Curtain and all that. I'll explain a little more later. And then uh, for nine years in the 2000s, my wife and I were missionaries in Kiev, Ukraine, uh, ministering to students there. InterVarsity is a student ministry to students in the USA and through the IFES uh, around the world. So um, we lived in Ukraine, and Ukraine is in the news. And so uh, let me try to explain something about what you might have seen in your newspapers. Here's a map of Ukraine, and the geography or this map explains the problem. Because if you see on the east side, Ukraine is surrounded by Russia. In fact, Sochi is right down here where the Olympics are. It's, on the, it's, on the, it's actually a summer resort, interestingly enough, on the Black Sea. Um, so the eastern part of Ukraine, there's this river that runs right down the middle uh, and divides the country west and east. The eastern part of Ukraine had always been a part of the Russian Empire. So the people in the eastern part of Ukraine speak Russian, and they think Russian. <laughs> and they identify with Russia. Um, the western part of Ukraine, as you see, uh, it's bordered by Poland, this is Hungary, Moldova, Romania, and then Germany and France are out here. Um, the western part of Ukraine had been for a long time a part of the Polish Empire. So the people in the west speak Ukrainian, not Russian. And Ukrainian is closer to Polish language. And they think West. And the country has always been divided for the last 900 years in those two ways. Well, in November of 2013, last November, after six months of negotiations, the president of Ukraine, uh, Mr. Yanukovych, uh, said, yes, I am going to sign an agreement a contract with uh, the, uh, the European Union, the Western countries, Germany, France, England, and so on, to have an economic uh, connection to them. And so on November 21st, he got on a plane and landed in Brussels, got off the plane and said, I changed my mind. Uh, I've decided not to make any contracts or agreements with the West. I'm going to make an agreement with Russia. Well, that led to this. <laughs> um, 250,000 people, mostly young people, mostly students, got gathered, ran into the center square of Kiev, uh, Independence Square, to protest this decision. And they stood out there for uh, many weeks in the cold to protest. And the government responded by sending in some police to beat up some of the kids. And also, the parliament passed some draconian laws 
basically taking away people's rights to free speech, people's rights to assembly, and some rights to religious freedom and religious expression. That led to this. Um, the peaceful protests turned violent in December, and that's the situation right now. Um, it hasn't gotten any better. It hasn't gotten any worse. They're just standing out there every day in the cold, facing the National Guard. Every now and then, somebody throws a bomb at somebody else. They're kind of waiting for the Olympics to end to see what's going to happen. That, what I've just said, you can read in any newspaper. You can see on CNN or Fox or whatever news that you watch. Here's what you won't see in the newspaper. This, that says prayer tent. This is the prayer tent set up by the, basically the InterVarsity group, uh, the Fellowship of Christian Students in Ukraine. They're part of the IFES, the International Fellowship of Evangelical Students. They were asked by the leaders of the opposition to set up a prayer tent where students, young people, can come and pray for their country. And uh, church people from all over Ukraine, little old ladies, uh, are sending um, socks, sweaters, warm clothes, and medicine for them to have in that prayer tent where the young people in the square can come and uh, get some medicine if they need it, get some warm clothes, pray for their country, and hear the gospel. Um, I got this yesterday that some of the Christian students, <coughs> excuse me, are um, passing out Valentine's cookies in the square. Um, maybe they'll get shot, maybe not. And they have that little sign there that says, we love you. Um, and also, um, here's a picture of some of the religious leaders. You see the Orthodox priests with their icons and so on. Uh, standing in the middle of the trouble. <laughs> Behind them is the National Guard, ready to attack. In front of them, you can't see it, are the protesters. And these rocks are left over from the rioting the night before. And so these Christian leaders are standing in the middle saying the only way for our country is peace through Jesus. The third guy from the right, him, Denis Gorinkov, is the director of the InterVarsity Ministry in Ukraine. It took him five or six years of relationships because the Orthodox leaders don't tend to like Protestants in Ukraine, but he has built up such relationships with them that he could stand there with them and witness for Jesus' peace. Also, notice that they are holding their icons. He's holding a Bible. He's holding up the Word of God, saying this is the way to peace in our country. We don't know what's going to happen with them, but um, there they are. And our experience there, when my wife and I lived in Ukraine, our experience with the young people was that they were kind of passive. It's kind of a passive culture. 
So it's scary but heartwarming for us to see that they have stepped up, that they have taken courage, they have stepped out of their comfort zone, and they are doing something bold for God that's affecting the world. Young people standing up for God in the midst of the rioting. I think that is our theme of Isaiah chapter 49. Um, get to it. Now this passage, this section uh, of Isaiah is actually a prophecy from the uh, prophet Isaiah to people who were exiled in Babylon. In 722 BC, the Assyrians came in and attacked the northern country of Israel, took the people captive to Assyria, were never, never seen again. In 586 BC, the Babylonians came, took the people from the south captive to Babylon, and they were there 70 years, and God brought them back. So the scholars think that this section is a prophecy to the exiles in Babylon. So read this as if you were captive in a foreign country. And it's basically about this mysterious uh, person, whoops, I'm sorry, still getting used to this thing, called the servant. He said to me, you are my servant. And so this is not Isaiah speaking. This is not the prophet Isaiah. This is this person called the servant. So who is this servant? Well, let's go back um, to Isaiah 42. And uh, it's a passage, and a pastor had mentioned this um, about six weeks ago, and I'll talk more about what he said in a minute. But um, there's three servant songs, songs of this mysterious servant uh, in Isaiah. This is the first where God talks about his servant. He says he's the chosen one. Um, he's going to bring justice to the nations. And uh, the islands are going to hear his teaching. He's a covenant for the people, a light to the Gentiles. He's going to open eyes that are blind, free captives from prison, and release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Okay, that's the first song of the servant. And then uh, our passage is the next servant song. This time, the servant himself is speaking. And it's an announcement. <laughs> Listen to me. You islands, and islands in this context was nations across the world. Listen to me. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me from my mother's womb. He's spoken to me. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow, concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant. Israel in whom I will display my splendor. 
But I said, I've labored to no purpose. I spent my strength in vain and nothing. Yet what is due me is from the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, to gather Israel to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. So this servant makes an announcement to the world, to the nations. God called me from my mother's womb. He prepared me. He hid me like an arrow in his quiver. Now he's taken me out and shooting me um, to the world. And my job is to bring Jacob back to him, to gather Israel back to God. But who is this mysterious servant? Well, he's somebody called by God to bring justice to the earth, to bring Israel back to God, to heal the blind and the lame, to free the prisoners from captivity, and in verse 7, it's not there, but in verse 7, all the kings of the earth will worship him. So who is this leading towards? Here's another good hint. A few chapters later, the third servant song also describes this servant. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. And then verse, whoops, sorry. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds, we are healed. Not only does this servant preach peace and justice to the nations, not only does he free the captives, he died for our sins. So you see how this is pointing to Jesus, written 700 years before Christ, describes him perfectly because this is the Word of God, right? So this is a story about Jesus, and in fact, it's Jesus speaking because in verse 1 of chapter 49, the servant speaks, Jesus speaks. Now, um, really short, but I do want to acknowledge that in our congregation, praise the Lord, we have some Old Testament scholars, some PhDs, some professors, some teachers, and so um, I do have to go back and point out verse 3. Um, he said to me, you are my servant, Israel. So the rabbinic interpreters, the Jewish scholars, say this is not a person, it's the nation of Israel uh, that God is, has, has raised up. And um, it's the nation of Israel that God is going to use. Well, uh, and the pastor went over this uh, in a sermon a few weeks ago. He spent 20 minutes on this. I'm only going to spend three minutes on it. Um, but remember what the pastor said. If you forgot, I'm going to remind you um, that there's a number of really good reasons why 
This servant is a person. Number one, all of the pronouns, I, me, my, are singular when he talks about himself. Secondly, the word Israel in the Old Testament means so many different things. It means the northern nation. Israel in the southern nation was Judah. It also means the people of God in the Old Testament, the people of Israel. But thirdly, it was a person, Jacob. God changed his name to Israel. And also, in verse 5 there, down toward the end, um, God says that the purpose of the servant is to bring Israel back to him. So how can Israel bring Israel back to God unless this servant uh, is a person? And, 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 and kind of the accumulation of Israel that I really believe, and so does Pastor, um, that this servant is Jesus. That Isaiah, 700 years before Christ, could see by God's grace and God's power who Jesus is. It's a wonderful miracle. This passage is a wonderful miracle. If this servant is Jesus in this passage, what does the servant do? Well, don't forget, this was written to people in exile. And so, look at uh, Isaiah 49, starting at verse 8. And by the way, um, the voices of who's speaking in this passage are confusing. That's why we had this wonderful dramatic reading by the three guys, and Greg Walters got to be God. Um, that's always cool. And uh, not only is he the chairman of our board, right? He's, he's got to be God. Um, but uh, here, God is speaking about the servant. He's speaking to the servant. So basically, God is speaking to Jesus. Here. And he says, I will keep you and I will make you to be a covenant for the people. Now, our pastor has also explained to us very well and very carefully and very often what a covenant is. It's an agreement that God makes where God promises something, to do something. By his blood, he promises he's going to do something, and that's called a covenant. And now Jesus personifies this covenant. He's sending Jesus to the people to restore the land, to reassign the desolate inheritances, to say to the captives, come out, be free. And then start after that, uh, starting here, the people, they'll feed beside the roads, find pasture on every barren hill. They'll not hunger or thirst. It's a, it's a picture of a shepherd, of a good shepherd taking care of his sheep. And then it's a, a picture of people coming back. The mountains go down. The roads come up. The way is clear. The people can return home. 
Now, if you're a captive in a foreign country, you're a, like a prisoner of war or, or you've been captured and you're living in this foreign country all these years and you read these words, how exciting. We're going to be free. We're going to be free. God's going to bring us back. And you know what? He did. In, in 586 B.C., as I said, after seven years, 70 years of captivity, just as God promised, he did. He brought the people back. So this prophecy was literally fulfilled. Um, li- within, within 100 years of Isaiah's uh, preaching. But of course, we know it means more than that, although it meant that and was very comforting, I'm sure, to those people. But God still gives hope to people who are physical, literal captives. Um, I had the great, uh, the great joy of living in Eastern Europe during the communist revolutions uh, in uh, 1989 or so. I got to see them and be there for them. And the harshest country at the time was Romania. It had a really harsh, hard communist government and very oppressive to the people. And December 25th, Christmas Day, 1989, they had a revolution. And they cast off their oppressive government. And the missionaries, we were right at, waiting at the border. Revolution happened. In went the missionaries. I got to be in the second wave going in there. And, you know, we'd go to this village and we'd say to the people, you're free. You're free. The, 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 the communist government, it's gone. You're free. Come out. Come out. You can think now. You can, you can say things. You can, you can read the Bible. You can believe in God again. You can, you can get involved, form a committee, help each other. No one's going to shoot you for having an idea like they used to. Um, you're free. What, what a joy that was to experience that, to go into a village and say to people, come out, you're free. And I have a lot of friends who work uh, within university too. We work with the, uh, the, the groups trying to work with the uh, sex slavery and uh, free the young people, mostly women, who are caught in the vileness of the sex slavery. And again, my friends tell me that every now and then in, in Eastern Europe they can, they go into a house in the basement and there's all these girls, captive teenagers. And, <clears throat> I'm sorry, they walk in the door and they say, we're not, we're not your oppressors, we're, we're, we're here to help you. You're free, come out. The guys who captured you, they're, they're in jail, we put them in jail. Come out, you're free in the name of Jesus. You're, you're free. That's what Jesus does, physically, literally. But also to spiritual captives. I mean, we work with young people still in the former Soviet Union who were born after communism ended but still have the communist mentality, shame, guilt, suspicion. 
And even in the churches, a lot of times it's the gospel of works. Do more good things than bad things because God is just waiting to judge you. And so you got to do lots of good stuff. And that keeps them in bondage. And what a joy to come there with the gospel of grace. By God's grace, the death of Jesus on the cross, his blood shed for you. You're free. You're free from sin, guilt. It was put on him by his wounds. You've been healed. If you believe in him, you're free. What a joy. What a joy to see lives change when they realize that they're free. And for us, all of us were once captive to sin, guilt. What a joy to know the gospel of grace. We're free. All our sins were put on him. By grace, we're saved through faith by his death on the cross, not because of we, what we do, but what he did for us. And if you don't know him, come to him. There's freedom. There's joy. There's peace. Come out. Come to him. Find freedom. So that's what the servant does. <laughs> he frees the captives. He shepherds them along the way. He um, brings peace, justice to the nations. But then there's the thing I skipped over. <laughs> Verse 6. God says, the he is God. God says this to Jesus. All right, we've established that. That's really important to understand. That's why I repeated it, even though the pastor said it uh, six weeks ago. God is saying this to Jesus. It's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Israel, to, those, to bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light to the Gentiles. The word Gentiles is the same word for nations. I will make you a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So here God says to Jesus, the Father says to Jesus, they're both God, the Father says to Jesus, it's too small a thing for you only to be concerned about one country. <laughs> I'm calling you to the nations to bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Well, we know that, right? That's not that new. Of course, that's what Jesus came for. John 3, 16. He loved, God loved the world. He gave us his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but has eternal life. God loves the world. Jesus brought salvation to the world. We know that. Well, here's the twist. Ready? Ready for this? This is going to change. This could change somebody's life. Okay? This verse is quoted in the New Testament by Paul and Barnabas to try to explain what they do to some people who are complaining. In Acts 13, and Paul changes the quote a little bit. And Paul says, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. 
I've made you, us, a light for the Gentiles, a light to the nations, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Like I said, the context is Paul and Barnabas were trying to explain what they do. So they meant them, but they represent us. And I believe because this is God's word, this is God's word to us. The Lord has commanded us, High Point Church, and each individual, each family, He's made us a light to the nations to bring his salvation to the ends of the earth. And uh, Jesus confirms that in what we call the Great Commission. One of the scholars said, this is the Great Commission in the Old Testament, Isaiah 49.6. But in the New Testament, after his resurrection, Jesus got his disciples on that mountain, and he said, guys... All authority is given to me, so I'm sending you. With my authority, make disciples of the nations. Teach them what I taught you. Bring them to me. Make them disciples. With my authority, God calls us to the nations. Now, It is really, really important that we care about our families. Families of the world are falling apart. Families in our country are falling apart. It's great to have this dedication this morning to affirm our families. Um, Awesome to be concerned for our families. Awesome to be concerned for our neighborhood, our city. I am so happy. a good friend of Pastor Alex G, and it's so wonderful to see how God is using him to try to do something about the racial divide in our city um, and our country. It's important to care about our country, and I pray all the time for revival in our country. That's great, but God's word to us is, it's too small a thing. It's too small a thing to only be concerned about your circle, the people you can see, the community you live in, the nation you live in. It's important, but it's too small a thing to only be concerned about that. He's called us to the world. He's called us to care about the world, to get on our hearts what is on God's heart, which is the world. So how do we do that? Well, any missionary talk will say the same thing. I'm just going to say it again. Um, We pray. And uh, let your, if you watch your CNN or read your newspaper, let that be your prayer list. I mean, here's yesterday's... uh, Wisconsin State Journal, yesterday. And every day, there's a section about page 8 or 10, Nation and World. Okay? Yesterday, Syria peace talks at an impasse. The war is going to keep going there. 
UN panel finds dire rights violations in North Korea. By the way, there's a missionary captured there that we just can't get out. We can't get him out. He's in a, he's in a labor camp. He was caught sharing the gospel. He's in a labor camp. Are we praying for him? Thousands of Muslims trying to flee are forced to turn back in the Central African Republic because they are being persecuted by angry Christians. Wonderful witness for Christ. Um, and so on. Let your newspaper be your prayer list in the morning. Or um, here's a little gift if you're interested in praying for students around the world. My office, we, we write a prayer request on Twitter every weekday morning for some other country of the world. So if you have Twitter, pray for IFES. Uh, we write the prayer request right here. And uh, you can pray for some specific thing in some other country of the world every weekday. So pray. It's really powerful. Learn. We had that wonderful uh, uh, film there about the small groups. One of the purposes of the small group is you are assigned a missionary. Every small group has a missionary from High Point Church. Get to know them. Many of our missionaries are local. Have your missionary come in. Ask them questions. Find out what they do. If they're overseas, there's this wonderful, miraculous thing called Skype. Skype with them. Um, you know, I, what a privilege it was. What a joy it was when we lived in, in Kiev and some of our supporting churches would have us Skype into their missions conference. And they would ask us questions and so on. I've got uh, a little over time, but I've got a really funny story. One of my missionary friends, um, one of his uh, churches in Ohio, arranged for him to, they're going to call him the days before Skype, call him at their missionary conference on a Sunday night. So they made all the arrangements. We're going to call you at 3 o'clock in the morning, your time. He forgot. So the phone rang, and he's reaching for his glasses, and Oh, hi, this is the First Baptist Church of Sandusky, Ohio, and you're our missionary. He's like, oh, he's trying to remember what to say. Anyway, um, so call your missionary at 3 o'clock in the morning. They'll love it. They'll love it. But learn about your missionary. Learn about your missionary. Pray for them. Learn what to pray. And give. Of course, our, uh, High Point has wonderful missions giving. Keep supporting that. And for some of you, go. I see lots of young people here, which is wonderful. You know, InterVarsity and Crew and NAVS and YWAM have wonderful, wonderful um, summer missions, our uh, spring break mission opportunities. Go on one of those. It will change your life, really. But not just the young people. There's lots of opportunities. Uh, and there's the, there's the trip to the Dominican. And let me say a word about, we also have some folks who have gone from time to time to the English evangelistic camp in Ukraine, or the Ukrainian, um, the, the staff training uh, camp there that we have. And I need to explain that in 1991, the Soviet Union collapsed, right? 
They ended communism. And everybody was like, hooray, we, we won. We won the Cold War, woohoo. But we didn't realize what that meant economically to them. That when the Soviet Union collapsed, so did their economy. And when I used to travel to the Soviet Union in the communist days, the exchange rate was $1 to one Russian ruble, exact. After the collapse of communism, they let the ruble float, and it got to 4,500 rubles to the dollar. So imagine if you're a pensioner, and you've saved 3,000 rubles for your retirement. One morning you wake up, it's worth $3,000. The next morning you wake up, it's worth 75 cents. If you get a salary of 1,000 rubles a month, the next week it's worth 25 cents, what you've worked for all, week, all month. Well, what that did to that generation of dads and moms, mostly dads, they lost their jobs and they lost their pensions and they lost their income, and they turned to alcohol. And the children born in those years, 91, 92, 93, 94, are the students we work with now. They have no parents. They might have parents physically, but the parents are so stoned out on alcohol or drugs or worry that they don't pay attention to their kids. I talked to one young lady and she was telling me about her mother, her mother, her sister. I said, oh, has your dad passed away? No, he, he, he still exists. He sits and watches television all day. He doesn't acknowledge when I come in, when I go out. He doesn't acknowledge my mother. He just sits there. There's no one to tell these little girls, <clears throat> that they're beautiful. There's no one to tell a little boy, you're a good boy, you're gonna become a good man. No one to tell them that. And so, Kent Ronhauser or um, Mark Finley or um, the venerable Bill Taylor or other guys and women go over to Ukraine and they meet with these young people who are now 18, 19, 20. They listen to them, they care for them, they pray for them, they encourage them. And the young people come to me and say, I've got a dad, I've got a dad. Mark Finley sat down, he listened to me, he talks to me. He sends me emails when he, when he goes back to America. I've got a dad who came from America to talk to me, to meet with me. That, that, young, that young girl that I said, her father just sits there. She's now a, a professor of Russian at University of Delaware. She said to me when she has to write down her father's name on a paper or something, she puts my name. I've got a dad, she said to me, I've got a dad. 
never had a dad, even though he physically lived there. That's, you don't have to be a Bible scholar or an evangelist to be a missionary. You just have to go through the Dominican for a couple of weeks and love a little kid. Or go to Ukraine and talk to a student. They all speak English. They're all studying English. It's easy. Or go on some other missions trip for a week or two. Just love people. You can do that. Or you can pray. Or you can give. God calls us to be involved with the nations. To step out of our comfort zone. Like these students who are passive. We couldn't get them to do anything. They stepped out of their comfort zone. And they're standing in the middle of that square with the rioters and the bombs going off. And they're being a light to the nations. God calls us to do the same. Dear friends, join the adventure. Step out of your comfort zone. Do one practical thing you're not doing now for world missions for the nations. Pray or learn something or read your paper more carefully or think about one of these missions experiences. Step out of your comfort zone. Be involved with what God cares about, which is the world. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you love the world so much you sent your only son that whoever believes in him, not what we do, not what we earn, just believe in him, we have eternal life. Thank you for your grace. Help us, Lord, to share that news by word and deed around the world. In Jesus' name, amen.